Hey folks, this is Kevin. And another of our Patreon patrons, Mika Kuspa, wrote into us at risk to say, you deserve stability. The archives of the show when I found it got me through a super rough time. There's nothing quite like this show. I hope we can listen to it for many years to come. Thank you so much, Mika. So many people say that Risk got them through a really tough time in their lives at one point. Knowing that is helping me get through this really rough time in Risk's life history. Remember, to help make sure we can still keep making the show for many years to come, join us at patreon.com risk, like Graham Steinhauer and Yuritza Ruiz recently did. Thank you, Graham and Yuritza. And for anyone who wants to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Now, on this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Who. One afternoon, a Cialis commercial came on, and I started to cry because that middle-aged white guy wearing his button-down dress shirt and wrinkle-free khakis was better than me. He got his shit together and still can keep it up. That and more. But first, I was at the gym today and I ran into a Risk listener who told me she was so moved by Ray Christian's story called Grit that was on the episode The Best of Risk number 21 because she works with young people who are near the poverty line. She basically said, I feel like people are able to talk about things on Risk in a raw, real way that you don't hear on other shows. That story by Ray was about hunger, and it got into the nitty-gritty, hardcore, day-to-day reality of someone who had to figure out how to navigate his day without enough money to pay for food. I was so touched that she said that, and it made me want to put out there today that we'd love to hear more stories like that on the show. If there are social workers who listen to the show, who might be able to introduce us to someone who might be able to share about their experience dealing with poverty, or maybe you're listening to this and you're someone who has dealt with being unhoused or at the end of your rope financially at some point, we want to hear those stories. Reach out to pitches at risk-show.com and all the info you need is at risk-show.com slash submissions. We'll be right back. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Mass Production. Behind me now, we're calling this week's episode Friction, how we've handled people at times that were a little hard to handle. First up, we're going to hear from Sandy Marks, who you can find on Instagram at Sandy Marks. Three, Sandy's got a book called Slightly Above Average that's coming out next year. And Sandy's always got so much love and encouragement for the other storytellers in the community and the audiences around New York and Los Angeles. This next story was recorded at her most recent appearance at the Risk Live show in L.A., Now, it got quite a conversation going on behind the scenes here at Risk, and I'll share more about that later. But here she is now. This is Sandy Marks with a story we call Table Turned. It's uh, me at the office. I am at my desk. I am going through 
pictures and resumes. I am a talent agent. You can tell that I'm old, and this is a long time ago, because back in the day, in the 80s and the 90s, the only delivery system for an actor was a picture and a resume in the mail in a manila envelope. You weren't online. Nobody was doing all their shots and sending them in electronically. So I would have a stack of pictures and resumes on my desk every morning. And usually we would just kind of rifle through them because they were mostly the same looking person who was like at play, at work. You know, it was, and, oh, sporty, they would wear a hat. You know, it was, it was, anyway, but I was going through them and then I am stopped dead in my tracks because I am staring at Amy fucking Spiegel. And Amy, it's undeniably her. She has the same widow's peak, black hair, Big black eyes, black soul. Amy was the Joseph Mengele of my sixth grade class at PS 196 in Forest Hills, Queens. And there she is in matte finish, black and white, staring at me. She doesn't know she sent me this picture because I have a different name, I'm married. And she just randomly sent it in. And she was the worst human being I'd ever known. She was such a bully. The best way to describe Amy was, uh, she was a cunt, okay? She was a horrible human being. And now, I own a talent agency, and I have a little bit of power, and I am not gonna be bullied anymore. So I take the picture, and I hand it to my assistant, Adam, and I say, you see this girl? You call her, set her up, we're gonna have her in, because revenge is going to be mine. Hell hath no fury, like an angry 11-year-old who has not forgotten what this girl has done. And my assistant's sort of confused, but the truth is, if you know about show business and talent agents and casting directors, we were all actors who were losers. I mean, I hate to generalize, but there are exceptions, but most of us tried to be actors, and we were, we were that good, we were, okay. So then we figured, well, you know, like if you can't do, you teach. Well, in the theater business, if you can't do, you try to make money by pushing other actors to be really good. And it's actually a really fun profession because if you love actors, why not? But now there's Amy Spiegel. We're protecting her identity. All right, so now everybody in my office is on board because everybody in my office were in the same spot I was. We were the ones in middle school and in, in grade school who had jazz hands all the time and we would burst out into songs inappropriately and we didn't have a lot of friends. You know, we really wanted to do improv and people looked at us like, oh yes, Anne, go somewhere else. Like nobody was interested. So, you know, we had a rough time. But in this case, this was really rough. So I'm gonna explain what happened. Okay, so when I was leaving the fifth grade, my parents got a letter from the Board of Education. And it said, congratulations, Sandy is going to be moved into the IGC, which was a completely new school. Now that stood for the intellectually gifted children, okay. First of all, this was a clerical error. It had to be, because I certainly wasn't intellectual. I had no gifts. I had no business being in this new class. And I knew that this was gonna be a major problem because 
I, I, what a, why? I don't belong there. And also, the school was in like the richer part of town, and we were a hot mess as a family. We were poor. We had terrible taste in our clothing. My mother would shop for my shoes at a store called Alexander's in New York, where all the shoes were sold in these bins, and they were attached at the heel with plastic. And my mother would make me try them on at the same time. So they never fit properly, because you couldn't really tell. And I was probably like the only like third grader who had like bunions. You know, it was not, it was just not great. So the clothes were awful. And then I know it might be hard to believe, but I was hideous. Okay, I mean I was really hideous. First of all, the hair was exactly the same as it is now. Only, you know, I didn't know how to deal with it. So it just grew up and out and didn't grow down. I looked like a little tiny Jewish Don King. Okay, <laughs> or. If you're too young to know who that is, just think Questlove, all right? I, all right so, and then I had a big nose, a really inappropriate nose for my little face. I was really little, I was always really little. And I had a terrible overbite because I was a thumb sucker. And then the real piece de resistance was I had one eye that just had a life of its own. It just didn't want to travel at the same time, in the same place. So when you talk to people, they were never, they would look down. They didn't know where to look when they talked to you. This is like little Marty Feldman person. And so, you know, I was up to a rough start, even with all the dummies in the poor kids' school. And now, I was gonna have to go to the good school. So, okay, so I'm thinking, so it's the first day of school, sixth grade. I'm wearing my, um, they were like um, knockoff dance skin casual separates, you know, I don't, know if, I don't know if you remember that brand. They're like stretch pants and a top that matches. And I had on my misshapen Alexander's shoes that were pleather and they hurt because I bought them out of a bin. And my hair, you know, I mean, the one time I tried to straighten my hair, we didn't have, I'm old enough, we didn't have hair blowers yet. That wasn't invented. So I ironed my hair with an iron that I plugged in. It was hot. So I went to school smelling like a roast chicken. You know, it's like, just horrible. Okay, so I show up, it's the first day, and I walk into the building, and I knew this was gonna happen. I look in, and I see this gaggle of really attractive young girls with clean, shiny hair, and they're wearing like, I don't know if it's Angora or cashmere, because I'm too young and stupid to know what those things are, but it was like soft, sweaters that looked like they wouldn't pill or anything. Like, they, they looked really good. And they had on headbands, and they were blonde. And they were in the back of the room, and they were all giggling and pointing at me. I knew they were pointing at me. And I thought, oh, shit. And I was right, too, because they were so mean. And the ringleader was Amy. She was a nightmare. She was horrible. And she just wouldn't let up. And my only friend the entire year was Hector Grinikoff, because Hector had just transferred into that class from a school in Chile, he was a transfer student, so I think his paperwork probably got screwed up also. He spoke no English. He wore the same brown and beige sweater the entire year. He had one of those really big, sweaty, meaty faces that had, and he had rosacea, so he always looked like he just came off the docks, like he was unloading fish or something. <laughs> he was my only friend, so we would like spend the whole year. All right, so here are Amy's atrocities. <sighs> sister of Satan. Okay, number one, she formed the number one club and she didn't invite me because she said, you're not a one, you're not even a two, you're not even a three. Now, in hindsight, it's kind of funny now because wouldn't you rather be a 10? I mean, <laughs> but when you're a little kid, you just think, 
Yeah, I'm a loser. I'm not in your number one club. Number two, we had gym, and we'd play dodgeball in gym. And I might add that our gym was also the cafeteria that they would switch up during the day. So when you would play sports in there or do calisthenics, it smelled like old egg salad all the time. So it wasn't like conducive to working out, but we'd play dodgeball. And Amy would take the ball, throw it at my face, and say it would be an improvement. Right? I know. I mean, I didn't understand then that insurance could then have paid for the nose job that I had to pay for myself years later, but I didn't know any of that. Okay, so, and the third and the worst was um, I was raising my hand to go to the bathroom because you had to do that, and our teacher, Mrs. Ostroff, should have been Amy's mother because she was also a total pig, and she wouldn't let me go to the bathroom. And I'm raising my hand. So I made in my pants, okay? I just made in my pants at my desk, puddle, and of course, Amy, like she's the only one who notices this. And as I am running from the room in my wool, like dirndl skirt, and it's wet, and I smell like a, like a really, like a hobo tween, you know, and I'm running out of the room, and Amy's yelling, you're such a baby, you're such an awful little baby. Okay, so that's how the year was. The whole year was like that. And I was traumatized. I used to cry every night because I had no friends. I thought I was just the worst, and it was all, to me, it was all Amy's fault. So the end of the school year, by some dumb luck, Amy's family decides that she's going to go to private school. It's like, oh my God, there is a God. There, this is amazing. I'm not going to have to see her anymore. And I don't until now, 22 years later, when she sends me her picture. And you know, it's like that fantasy when you have a rough thing happen to you and you plan what you'll say when you're on David Letterman and you're gonna look at the camera and you're gonna tell that person what a nightmare they were. That was the moment. I was having my David Letterman moment. I was gonna have the last word, finally. So, okay, I made some plans. She was set up to come in the following week. I got ready, so the day comes and I put on one of my favorite power suits because it's like 1991, and that's how, we, that's how we rolled back then. We wore these tight, double-breasted jackets. They had little shoulder pads. It was like, think Crystal Carrington. And then we wore pencil skirts that were super, super tight, so you kind of walked around where you couldn't really move anywhere, and if you wanted to sit, you had to kind of throw yourself in the seat, you know? So you never really were at a bend. You were kind of at like a resting position. So I, I had that on. So I, ha I had my hair blown out, because now there were hair blowers. I had my manicure. Now, also, I had my nose fixed. Dr. Lochterman worked out the eye issue. I had orthodonture. So I might not have been beautiful, but at least now, I look like if I went back to the sixth grade, maybe I'd have one friend or two. I don't know. So I look pretty good. You know, a little bit money, you can get stuff. So, all right, so I get to the office. I get there early, and I rearrange my desk because I want her to know how important I've become. So I take all the photographs on my desk of my family, of clients, famous actors, and I face them out in, like, a panorama. You know, like a... It was like my desk became my diorama almost. And then I took every gift that I had ever been given by anybody, any casting director, any, and I had it all out. Like, so like crystal, big crystal globes that were paperweights, and we had fancy gold pen sets, and I just laid them all out, like littered the desk with everything. And, and I, I was like, I was really excited, I was ready. Okay, so then I called Joanne, the receptionist. I say, okay, Joanne, when Amy gets here, tell her to have a seat. We're gonna let her sit there for a really long time. <laughs> 
and don't give her any copy to read. Now, when actors come to meet me, I always give them like commercial copy to read so I can get a sense of who they are, like what their thing is, and it's a way to break the ice, but I wanted her to feel really uncomfortable. So I said, just let her sit there, just stew a bit. And then I said, oh, and also, tell her the bathroom's out of order. <laughs> oh, she's not going to the bathroom, not in my office. Mm -mm. So, all right, so. We're all ready. The assistants in the office were all like, <laughs> okay, so, all right, so she gets there, okay, and I'm so nervous because I'm really a nice person, unfortunately. I'm not really mean, even though I want to be so badly. So I'm so scared because I feel like, oh God, I'm that shitty little kid again. I'm right back in the sixth grade. So finally I said to Joanne, okay, it's been 40 minutes send her back. So she comes back and I can't look at her. So I pick up her picture and I pretend I'm reading the resume. And meanwhile, Adam, my assistant, like, like his eyes are boring a hole in the back of her head. And I can't, and I'm just looking at the resume and I'm looking at everything, her special skills. Oh, and if you're an actor out here, don't put down special skills unless you have them, okay? If you can't, like, roller skate or ride a horse, leave it out, okay? Just... It's a pro tip, because that happens and it's bad. Okay, so then I finally put the picture down and all of a sudden, I start to transform into like a 40s film noir star. And I, hello, Amy. How are you? Do you recognize me? Like, I don't know who I, like, and my Adam's like, what the hell? What the fuck? So she goes, no. I said, well, does the name Sandy Handelman mean anything to you? And then she, I, she looks at me, I, she sees it. I could tell, because she, she has that look like she fell in a well and Lassie's not gonna bark her out of there. She's like looking at me. She goes, oh, hi. And I know she's trying to rerun like in her head, okay, what happened in the sixth grade? Like I know she knows. So I said, Amy, I just wanted to see how you were. Because as you can tell, and again, I'm in this, I don't know, Betty Davis, things for me have turned out really well. And I'm like showing her my pictures. I said, you see, it says S-E-M and M. Well, I'm the last M after the ampersand, you know. I'm just like, I'm acting like a complete idiot, but I don't care. And she was, oh, it's great to see you. And I said, well, Amy, I only brought you in here because I wanted to see how a mean girl would turn out. Because as you can see, you didn't break me. I turned out just fine. Do you have any daughters? Are they as horrible as you are, Amy? And she is so confused. Like, why did I, she call, like, what's happening? Why am I here? I thought I would get an agent who thought I could do like shake and bake or something. And now I'm being told that I'm a horrible human being. I said, Amy, I only had you in here so you could find what it would be like in your heart. You could see for just a 45 minute amount of time what you put me through for nine whole months. What did you think? Did you like it? Did you like sitting out there and being confused? Did you like not using my bathroom? Did you like coming in here and having me berating you? Well, you did that to me every single day. And this is a lesson to you, Amy. You're not too old to change. Kill them with kindness. Don't be such a bitch. And I'm going on and on. And meanwhile, all of the assistants, they're all like coming into the room. They're like, yes, yes, yes. I was like, and in my mind, I was like, I'm doing this for all of you. I'm like, I'm the Mother Teresa of revenge addicts. I'm doing it for everybody. So anyway, she gets the message that I'm only gonna lacerate her more. So she gets up and she kind of like walks around. Well, it was really great catching up. I really thought we were friends. But I said, no, Amy, we were never friends. And she says, well, it's been great. I gotta go. And she exits and everybody in the room is like cheering and they're so excited. And, and I know I should have been, but the first response in my 
soul was, what am I doing? I'm just as bad as Amy. I'm being horrible. I'm not that person. I think I'm nice. I try to be nice. I was just such a bitch to her. But, but then I thought about it just a couple more minutes, and I thought, oh, no, no, that was really, really good. <laughs> I'm really glad I did that. Because you know what? My mom used to always say that the meek inherit the earth, and I don't necessarily think that's true. But for five minutes there, while she was walking out, I thought, okay, maybe we do. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Prince behind me now with Controversy, which I thought to include as the music here because I thought I'd mention this debate behind the scenes here at Risk that took place when our editing team heard Sandy's story that you just heard. See, there's folks on the staff who are of a Buddhist bent and big believers in that modality you might have heard of called nonviolent communication that came from the book by that same name. And all that, I think, inspired this conversation to spring up among the editors about the extent to which Sandy's striking back in the end of that story was maybe tough love, versus the extent to which there was justice in it, versus the extent to which it was hurt people hurting people. You know, I can personally say that I was an actor going out for those kinds of meetings in New York when Sandy was an agent, and she had a well-earned reputation for being real, for being a person who could give no bullshit guidance to actors who might have needed a little, you know, wake up call in this or that way. So I let Sandy know that mostly our editing team liked the story, but in some cases with a guilty conscience about how right or wrong her revenge was in the end of the story. And Sandy said, I'll quote here. She said, I had a feeling of regret because I was doing a similar thing as my bully, but being sincere in the story also meant telling the truth that in that brief moment, there was elation. I'm absolutely fine with any conversation about the story afterward, especially if it might somehow prevent one family from raising a bully or get people thinking of alternative ways to quote-unquote settle a score. I don't consider myself a role model in a lot of my stories. At 66, I'm still figuring myself out. <laughs> Boy, do I get that. So yeah, I remember where I was when I first heard that story. I was walking through Chinatown in New York and I was literally cheering 
about Sandy's revenge while getting looks at me from passers-by. Like, what's this guy (laughs) so excited about? But at the same time, it did occur to me how shaming someone could backfire and ultimately cause nothing better than for a karmic cycle of aggressive behavior to keep churning around, you know? So maybe the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook would be a good place for folks to share their thoughts about it all. Remember, if you want to join that Facebook group, you have to answer a couple of questions to prove you're not a bot or something like that. In any case, one thing you can always count on with Risk is that we're often not so cut and dried, you know, so black and white. We're perfectly good with wading into the gray areas. So there you go. Talk amongst yourselves. After the break, we're going to hear from Stuart Jacobson. But before Stuart, we'll hear from David Who. Dave's been on the show a bunch of times. So it'll be great to hear from him again with a story we call Lucky It's Not Your Fucking Head. Right after this break. One afternoon, my manager called me into his office and he said, David, you're fired because you're fucking incompetent. It brought chills down my spine. I just recently graduated college. I'm in my early 20s. And now I got fired from my first job in less than six months. That terrible day affected my entire life. Future employers never gave me a chance because I got fired from my first job in less than six months. All my close friends from college abandoned me because I wasn't worked at time. Got depressed, slept all day, and just woke up to watch TV. One afternoon, a Cialis commercial came on, and I started to cry because that middle-aged white guy wearing his button-down dress shirt and wrinkle-free khakis was better than me. He got his shit together and still can keep it up. And that's when my mom and dad knew I had a problem. And they sat down with me one afternoon and he says, David, whatever happened to you in the past was not your fault. You gotta move on, you gotta find a job. I don't care what you do. You can't sleep all day and cry during Cialis commercials. The following afternoon, I find a job on a construction site, working in this hot and stuffy storage locker. I'm packing boxes of computers I felt like I was in John Wayne Gacy's basement. It was humbling, making minimum wage on a college degree. And degrading when your manager is John. Middle-aged, stocky, tough Long Island guy, cursed like a sailor, always carried a wooden baseball bat. And he had a tattoo of Donald Duck holding a decapitated head on his forearm. It was childish and disturbing. And all I wanted to do was keep a low profile and stay under John's radar as much as I can. 
One morning, I walked onto that construction site. Someone broke into the storage locker and stole the computers. My stomach just dropped to the ground. And standing behind me was John, holding that wooden baseball bat, beat red in the face. He was like, what the fuck just happened? You didn't lock the storage room? What, you fucking incompetent? Before I could explain myself, it brought back bad memories when I got fired from my first job straight out of college. And I stormed out of that construction site and never returned back. I was so pissed off. When I got back home that afternoon, my mom was standing at the front door. This is David. Is there something you need to tell me? I'm like, no. Why did you walk up to the construction site? I'm like, how do you know? John is looking for you and he's worried. And that's when I got really scared. And my mom's like, how come you walked off on John like that? He sounded like such a sweetheart. Mom, don't make assumptions until you meet a person like John. I don't care, you gotta return back to work. You need a job. The following morning, I swallowed my pride and everyone at that construction site was egging me on. Ooh, John is pissed and he's gonna fuck you up with that baseball bat. You better be prepared to be a paraplegic in heaven. I'm like, dude, it's bad enough I'm gonna be a paraplegic, but in heaven, come on now. John asked me to his office that morning. I remember sitting down. He's circling around me like a shark with that baseball bat. I'm scared he's going to fuck me up. And John says, I don't mind. You have to leave early. Just let me know. Now get back to fucking work. For some twisted reason, I had a newfound respect for John. Until later that afternoon, he started bitching me out. And I was like, John, I have a college degree and I want to work with computers. I'm better than this. And John's face just turned beet red and I get really scared. And John is like, how come you never told me? Whoa, am I getting gaslit? And he says, I have an assignment for you. I was really excited. My monitor is not working. And he takes a baseball bat and hits his monitor with it. And he says, you're lucky it's not your fucking head, bitch, as he points the baseball bat at me, and he said, now fucking fix my monitor. And every morning, he breaks his monitor with the baseball bat, and I had to go to the storage locker and pick up a new one. They weigh a ton, and I got really tired. My back started hurting me. Next time he broke his monitor, I plugged it back in, and he was impressed, and he got me off his job working on spreadsheets. I worked with John for a little over a year, and one afternoon he called me to his office and says, David, you're fired. Not because you're fucking incompetent, it's because you're better than this. I teared up, and as a token of appreciation, I went out and bought him a wooden baseball bat with his initials on it. And I pointed the baseball bat at him and I said, you're lucky he's not your fucking head, bitch. We smiled and hugged. Ironically, working for a sociopath like John taught me not to wear my heart on my sleeve or get a stupid ass tattoo on my forearm, which made me the success of who I am today.
puberty for me was turning out to be one long-term boner-based anxiety attack. I dreaded, I feared popping a heart on, you know, in an inappropriate situation, like when I got up in front of the class or in the locker room. So I went to my sex ed instructors. Now, these are guys who, you know, were a couple years older than me that hung out in the alleyway behind my house on 77th Road in a gritty part of Queens. You know, guys like Ronnie Caruso and Phil Rosenberg. And their advice to me was that if I feared getting a boner at the wrong time, was to think about stuff like ambulances, hospitals, and deathbeds. And it worked. So now it's about 15 or so years later, I'm married to a woman who had just graduated from medical school, and she's on an internship at the beginning of a grueling seven-year neurosurgery residency. She wanted to be a brain surgeon. And she actually became a successful brain surgeon, and her reputation was as someone who, with a skilled surgeon with talented hands, who could be depended upon to provide a good outcome. Her second year of her residency was a year for research, and this was really specific for people who wanted to become academics so they can get a track record you know, of publications and establish a name for themselves. My wife, whose name was Gretchen, did not want to be a academic, and we looked at this year as a good time to have a family. And the way the schedule went really looked the best to us to have this baby delivered in September. So as I like to say, she aimed and I shot for a September baby. Gretchen, you know, she's a a slight Scandinavian Germanic American who is, you know, has an understated presence, but is very authoritative and very compulsive, which is probably what you want in your brain surgeon. And she consulted every possible font of knowledge to try to determine the best time for conception. She took her temperature. She had a tarot cards reading. She went to a fortune teller. She did a Ouija board. She consulted astrologists, all in order to get the best time for conception. So she's on a 48-hour in-hospital rotation, calls me up in the phone and says, you know what, it's time. At this point, I have my own business, and I'm working very, very hard, and I'm sort of groggy, but I sort of remembered, yeah, this might happen. So I get in my car and drive down to the hospital and park my emergency room among the ambulances. I see her and she leads me to a a room that's empty and says, I've got us a room, you know, we can get this done. And so it's wonderful. And I sit down in the bed and the bed is warm. So I said to her, why is this bed warm? And she's beginning to sense my anxiety, my panic, but she's still, she's all business. She's very thorough and very compulsive. She says to me, guy died in here. Now, she had, did not know about my, you know, my institutional learning years and years ago back in the alleyway, you know, with Ronnie and Phil. But she can sense once again, I'm sort of, at this point, I'm getting more, more panicky, more anxiety. She says to me, what do you think? This is a hospital. Either they get better and they go home, or they go to rehab, or they die. Then she sees that I'm really not doing that well, so she says to me, you know what, I was wrong. He didn't die, we discharged him, he went home, and now he's with his family in Disneyland. Now I've gotta go down the hall and talk to somebody, get yourself started. So I'm saying to myself, how am I gonna learn all this stuff? These are really valuable lessons I've integrated, you know, it's like muscle memory. But I've said to myself, I'm with my wife. I love her. She loves me. We know why we're doing this. We're sexually compatible. 
We're going to do it right. We're going to make long, slow, tender love, plenty of foreplay, you know, plenty of afterplay. We're going to just do it right. And I started feeling better. My spirits beating to rise. And then she, she bursts back into the room and says, they need this room right away. We got to get this done. And I have to tell you, when you put yourself in the skilled hands of a talented surgeon, you get a good outcome. And you know what? We got our September baby. This is BT Express behind me now, and we just heard from Stuart Jacobson. You can find on Instagram at Stuart Jacobson. Stuart told us, my day job is as a trust administrator, and while that work is interesting and it pays well, I would prefer to make money telling stories. Well, Stuart, <laughs> that makes two of us. <laughs> And before that, we heard from David Who, who you can find on Instagram at DaveWho718. He will also be in the next Risk live show in New York at Caveat on September 28th. Now, two more folks I want to give a shout out to for joining our Patreon are Carl Peter McCullough and Babs Smith. We're so honored and grateful for the help. Carl and Babs, and to everyone else, remember, you might think, ah, the podcast has hundreds of thousands of folks listening. They'll donate to keep it running. But in fact, it's probably less than 3% who are donating to keep it running. So we definitely need more of you to jump in. I mean, I haven't done the math. <laughs> but statistically, you know, it's usually about 1% to 2% of uh, folks who are supporting a podcast. You get the picture. We're at patreon.com slash risk or if you want to make a one-time donation 
paypal.me slash risk show. Or if you have any other idea of how to support, including ideas of what we could auction off or what you could offer to auction off, I'm at Kevin at risk-show.com. We'll be right back. We're back. Now, our next episode coming on Thursday is another one of our funny stuff episodes. These funny stuff episodes are perfect to share with newcomers because they're nothing but funny. <laughs> and on Thursdays, you'll hear Kitty Haley. No! No! He's not hurting him. They're fucking. <laughs> and Morgan Jones Phillips. Why? 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 Why do I do all the penis calls? But that is Thursday. And folks, today is the day. Take a risk. I would give my life for. Who killed my daughter? Who took her life? You could seek to understand all knowledge, everything, and order a hot dog. There was a time when there were lots of dicks, and then there were no more dicks. Cat sounds. So I, what I did was I just counted how many dicks there were, and here's the data. So I'm less convinced by the, by the energy conservation idea. But the third idea I'm quite attracted to, which is a hot dog bun. <laughs> <laughs>